Thanks, Aaron. Well, good morning. You know, for those of you that are just joining us, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here. And um, as Eric said earlier, we're studying in the book of First Samuel, and today we're in First Samuel chapter 15. And and as we've been going through First Samuel, we've been looking at the rise of the monarchy in ancient in ancient Israel. And that how the people of Israel had chosen uh, for themselves a bad king, in fact, a terrible king. But in spite of it all, that God was faithfully working his purpose to redeem and save them. You know, this chapter 15 marks like a significant like point in the story where God formally rejects God's, uh, like Saul's reign over his people. And then next week, Lord willing, in 1 Samuel 16, we'll see like the start of something new um, that's going to happen in the book of, of 1 Samuel. But, you know, here at Creekside, we're committed to teaching through books of the Bible in their entirety. You know, and, and uh, sometimes that works out great and sometimes that creates difficulty. Because, um, you know, and the difficulty is even a good thing because, uh, and, and, and the reason why I say that is this passage has some difficulty in it. And if you've read ahead, people are laughing that have read ahead. Um, and we'll get to it in a minute, so, or you can skim ahead and try to find out what I'm talking about. But, um, but it's important for us because God has chosen to reveal himself in the pages of Scripture. And it's important for us that we don't just pick and choose those things that we like to hear and those things that we want to hear or those things that make us feel good or those things that never push against us at all. Because then we won't have an accurate understanding of who the Lord is. We won't have an understanding of this life. And we just make ourselves and our standards the center of things instead of God and, and what he has chosen to reveal. You know, so that's one of the benefits. One of the benefits to teaching through books of the Bible is it brings balance to us that seek to follow Jesus Christ because um, we see, like Paul, Paul talked about this when he talked to the Ephesian church. He says, I taught to you the whole counsel of God. Not the edited version, not the comfortable version, not the what Steve would like to hear version, but the whole counsel of God's word. And, and that's what we're going to tackle this morning. You know, and, and I think some of the things we're going to read this morning are going to unsettle us a bit. And in fact, I'll read verses 1 through 3 so you guys can know what I'm talking about. It says, First um, Samuel 15, verses 1 through 3, it says, Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and, destroy, and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Verse 3 is a troubling verse, right? And it's a verse that should probably unsettle us a little bit. And it's a verse that should like upset our equilibrium a little bit. Because you, you might ask yourself, really? Like God commanded, God commanded his people to go strike another like nation and kill every man, woman, child, and pet? Like, really? Like, what kind of God is that? You know, the uh, Richard Dawkins, um, if, if, any of you familiar with Richard Dawkins? Yeah, like he's written this book, The God Delusion. I don't have the exact quote this morning, but he appeals to passages like this and says, like, the God of the Bible is, like, the Bible's filled with a, a um, genocidal maniac who gives instructions to his people for genocide, right? And you look up to verse 3, and, and you're like, man, Richard Dawkins might be onto something, right? 
You know, and, and I knew that there's no way I could just read over that and just jump into the text and, and uh, like, pretend like it's not there, right? Because, um, like, a lot of you, your brains are going to be hung up there. Like, how in the world do we understand, like, this God who goes and commands something like that? And why would we join together and worship him? And so what I want to do this morning is a little bit out of, like, ordinary I want to do is I want to just briefly take some time to, like, address that issue. And I'm not, I'm not going to pretend or claim to, like, address it com- comprehensively this morning. But I do want to give us a little bit of framework that will allow us to get into the text and um, give us a little bit of framework that will allow us to get into the text so that we understand what's actually being said here and what's actually not being said here. And then um, I also have, if I think I have this in my uh, on the slides, uh, Grady. But if uh, if you want to go to creeksidemac.org/slash First Sam fifteen for First um, Samuel fifteen, all that you have to do is go there and type in your email address, and you'll immediately get an email back from me. Like if you do it right now, you'll be like, "Wow, he did that while while he was preaching." No, it's pre-programmed, so don't feel so special. Uh, <laughs> It's a free, but in that, in that, well, there'll be three links to three different articles that Eric found for me as we were like talking through this issue um, that I think could help you and probably deal with things a little bit more comprehensively than I'll have the chance to deal with it this morning. And if you still have questions, like uh, just reply to that email, it'll come to me. Um, and I'd love to respond to some of those questions because I feel like I have some other things I could add to that discussion that might help you process through it. Creeksidemac.org slash First Sam 15, um, if you want that. So, uh, but let, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about what's being said here, and then I'll kind of formally get into our message. You know, first of all, like the, the, this text, and there's, there's one other uh, circumstance like it in the Old Testament. It, it was when the people of Israel first came into the promised land and first like, drove out those nations before them. Like God gave Joshua a similar command um, to do that to the inhabitants of Jericho and to the inhabitants of the land to kill everyone. Now, it's important for us to understand that what God's commanding here isn't giving the nation of Israel permission to do this. It's not like, hey, anytime you're hacked off at somebody, you can go into a nation and you can like wipe out every man, woman, child, and pet, right? This is not a blanket like command that he's giving them. In fact, here and in, and in uh, jo- Joshua, right? Here and in Joshua, like it's a very specific and limited thing. In fact, it's not something that the king has the right to do himself. In fact, it's something that God does. Look what it says in verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as over king. What he's saying to Saul is like, hey, God, God was the one who appointed you as king. And then he says, now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. He's telling Saul, like, Saul, you're not a sovereign here. In fact, you serve the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. In fact, he's referred to as the Lord of hosts in verse 2, the Lord of the armies of heaven. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did. Now, as much as this might disconcert you more, like God is the one who is doing this thing. It's not something that he's giving permission to Saul to do. He's like, Saul, you work for me. And I am going to do something. I am going to punish, punish Amalek for what he did. And we're going to look at that for a little bit, what it says when he set himself up against Israel while he was coming up out of Egypt. What this is, isn't a blanket permission or even... even um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, 
What is it? Yeah, it's not normative. Um, it's not like giving, starts with a C. Carte blanche. Thank you. That's not the word I was thinking of, but it works. <laughs> so, it's like, um, you know, charades. Uh, he's not giving carte blanche normative instructions for Israel. This is a very specific judgment upon a specific circumstance where God is demonstrating that he is sovereign, not just over the nation of Israel, but he is sovereign over all nations and all nations are accountable to him. And in this one circumstance, he is going to exact justice upon a nation that committed an offense. Like God is the God. He's the Lord of hosts that that I, I mentioned it just a second ago, that he's the Lord of the armies of heaven. And he is the one to whom all People and all nations will give an account, and he has authority to judge. And sometimes in the scriptures, he uses a nation to do that against another nation in this temporal way. In fact, you know, interestingly enough, the nation of Israel was on the receiving end of this way more than they were on the giving end of it. Like twice they were commanded, like I said, going into the promised land in Joshua and here to be kind of agents of God's justice on a nation. But um, God rose up nation after nation after nation against the nation of Israel for their disobedience. Like he is not a respecter of persons, but all nations are accountable to him. If you flip back, you don't need to, but I have it up on the screen. Hannah, at the beginning of the book of Samuel, as she's praising God, um, she has this statement at the end of her praise, and, and she says this, Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered against them. He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. He will extract, exalt the power of his like anointed one in, in which this case Saul is a picture of that God is the judge of all the earth and and he has chosen to act in a temporal way to judge a nation for a particular like offense this is judgment it's not genocide you know the second thing in this that's easy to read over is that this story is actually laid this this picture of judgment is laid side by side with a picture of like God's grace and, and the reason why this is, it's easy to look over because the circumstance that he's referring to, look what he says back in chapter 15, verse 2, I think it is. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on his way while he was coming up out of Egypt. What's going on there is God's looking back to a circumstance that had happened 400 years before. And, and for us to understand what's going on with that long delay, we kind of have to understand it in light of the context of the other time when God commanded this because there was a similar time frame there. And the other time that God commanded this, when Joshua went into the land, um, he commanded it against the inhabitants of, of the land of Canaan at that time. But if you go back to Deuteronomy, when Moses is speaking to the people, I have it here, Deuteronomy chapter 25. Oh, no, this isn't. I, I skipped ahead of my notes. I'm sorry, Grady. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, God's speaking to Abraham. Here he's called Abram. And, and he says this. And the nation of Israel didn't even exist at this point. At this point, it was just him and his... I'm trying to think of how many kids he even had. Maybe just one son at this point. Um, this is what God told Abram. He says, God said to Abram, know for certain... 
that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will be as enslaved and oppressed 400 years. That would later on be fulfilled in the, in the like, country of Egypt. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward, afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now, that last phrase is really, really important. Because what he's saying there is the reason why there's going to be this 400-year delay is because the wickedness of, of the people of, of the Amorites, those that lived in Canaan, had not reached its fullness yet. You know, at some point in time, like, like let me just step back a second. Like, sin destroys, sin corrupts, sin harms. And at some point in time, like, wickedness will get to such an extent that God in his grace and his mercy will intervene and bring judgment upon it. But if you think about this, he's like the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. They were in disobedience and in defiance to the Lord prior to that statement. And they were in disobedience and defiance to the Lord for 400 years after that statement. And what we see here is that in, in God bringing judgment upon the Amorites, like you see God's forbearance and God's grace where he wasn't going to just like jump in there at first opportunity and bring judgment. He, was, he waited and waited and waited patiently, forbearing and demonstrating grace. And, and when the people, the, the people of the land continued to rebel, he brought judgment upon them. Now, it's super, super important. Like, track with me here. When they first go into the land, those of you that have kind of grown up going to Sunday school, first thing that happens after they reconsecrate themselves to the Lord is that they have, there's two battles that are fought. The first battle is the Battle of Jericho. You guys familiar with the Battle of Jericho? This is where like the first execution, no pun intended, of, of this judgment of God was brought to this city. But the, the remarkable thing that happens when the people of Israel come up against Jericho, does anybody know what happens like to one of the inhabitants of Jericho? What's the surprising thing that happens? Somebody in the line of Jesus, you just said Jesus, I'm, I'm going to not look at you anymore. Um, <laughs> Rahab, right? There's a Canaanite woman who was a prostitute. The first thing that happens when the people of Israel come up against Jericho is that a Canaanite woman who is a prostitute, so with no righteousness of her own, who was under the curse that God had pronounced on the, the inhabitants of the land. What happened to her? She was delivered. She was delivered, made included in the family of God. And, and every single one of us here, if we have like trusted in Jesus Christ, uh, she, we are one of her spiritual descendants because we've, she had the honor of becoming part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. So the first thing that happens is God demonstrates is like, you know, it's not about race. It's about worship. And, and Rahab the harlot, who responded in faith because she saw what God had done for the people of Israel, was included in the family of God and escaped the judgment. Second thing that happened, battle of Ai. Battle of Ai, there's this guy named Achan who wasn't supposed to take the plunder because they were supposed to kill everything. 
and he and and all of it was dedicated to the Lord, and he took some of the plunder for himself. Does anybody know how that story ends with Achan? <laughs> Go sit over there with him. Don't make me put you in time out. So, yeah, like, thank you, your wife, who has so much more spiritual insight than you. Um, Achan was stoned to death, and it says that he was buried under this entire pile of rubble that stood there until that day. Like, he met the same fate as the people of Jericho. Their city was reduced to rubble. Achan's life was reduced to a giant pile of rubble, even though he had been part of the people of God, but he wasn't a true worshiper of God. And because his worship was opposed to God, like he ended up under the curse, whereas Rahab the prostitute, because she placed her faith in God, was delivered from it. You know, so there's this context of God's like grace playing out over hundreds of years. And what you have here is you have the same thing. And it's, you know, providentially, I don't know if there's some meaning to it, about 1,000 B.C., this is, what, this is the Deuteronomy passage, this is what happened, is that, is that about 1,000 B.C., the, the, the Amalekites attacked the people of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 25, it says this. It says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way that you came from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about that when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you an inheritance possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. So what happened is as people of Israel were leaving. What, what kind of people are the ones that are the stragglers? Who, who straggles behind, right? The weak. The weak. Yeah, people like me. Thank you, Paul. You're going to sit over there. Can we just, like, kick people out? Is that an okay thing? Like... It's a rough crowd this morning. Yeah, the weak, the children, the infirm, right? When the people of Israel are weary out in the desert, Amalek came and picked off all the weak, and there was this great battle. And God says, yeah, one day I'm going to judge that nation. But it's gonna, and what happens is it's 400 years later. That happened about 1400 BC. These events that we're reading about here in 1 Samuel 15 happened about 400 years later, about 1000 BC. God in his grace and his forbearance and his patience was giving opportunity for Amalek to like repent, just like Rahab did. If you go back and read the story of Rahab in, Jer- in Joshua, she actually says, I saw the way that the God had, had delivered the people of, from Egypt and had protected them on the way, and that's why she was trusting the God of Israel. Amalek had just seen what we saw last week, that through, through one guy, he routed the, God routed the entire Philistine army. And yet they continued to like live in defiance to the Lord. And, and so you have this picture here that's, that's something that we need to understand because in our, our nation today, like we don't like the idea of judgment. And, and as, we, as we come to these passages of judgment in the scriptures, like I said before, they should unsettle us because God's judgment is a fearful thing. But here you have this picture of God's judgment simultaneous with his, with his um, picture of forbearance and grace. You know, and so first is it's God acting in judgment. It's not just that. Second is it's a picture that reveals to us God's forbearance and grace. And the third one that I'm going to give this morning, and again, I'm not pretending this to be comprehensive, 
is that we need, to, we need passages like this because they expose the propensity of our own hearts to kind of deny that we're going to be held accountable one day. And they expose our needs for God's grace as they foreshadow and forewarn us of the judgment to come. We're going to, this story, I think, will illustrate that for us as we play through it. So I'm just going to say that one now. We'll get into our study of First uh, Samuel 15, and I think I'll be able to get done by the end of the by the end of the morning here. Um, and, and First Samuel 15 kind of breaks out in three sections, and this is this is the th- one: God judges Amalek. That's what we've been talking about. Second one is they weren't the only ones that were experienced God's judgment. So did Saul. God, God rejects Saul. And then the third one is that God regrets making Saul king. So um, please stand with me. I'm going to read um, 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 9. And then I will pray, and then we'll get into the scriptures together. But then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim and 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among them, for you showed kindness to, with all the, I'm sorry, you showed Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go down to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he captured Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good. And were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for... Your word, even when it leads us into things that are hard for us to wrap our hearts and our minds around. And so, Father, I just ask that your spirit would work this morning to, to reveal yourself to us, to reveal our desperate need for the gospel and, and the beauty of Jesus Christ, even in a difficult text, text, text like this. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, I'm not going to spend too much more time on this, but as in that section I just read in verses 1 through 9, you see this command that God had given Saul to go, to, to go bring judgment upon the country of Amalek. And, and then in verses 4 and 5, you see Saul putting together the army. But then verse 6 is interesting. He says, And Saul said to the Kenites, Go and depart from among the Amalekites, lest they destroy you with them. So the Kenites were another people group. Um, they were mostly just blacksmiths. I don't know why that's important, but uh, it doesn't tell us that in the text. But historically, I don't know why they all were blacksmiths. But the Kenites lived among the Amalekites, and they were a different people group than the Amalekites. And, and in fact, when the, uh, Moses' father-in-law, I think, was a Kenite, and, in, and when uh, right around that same time that the Amalekites did them harm, the Kenites like, did them good. And what you see here is, again, the same idea that simultaneously to God's judgment coming, there are those that escape. There are those that escape the judgment of God. And, and Saul is actually taking steps here. He loses his tactical advantage by announcing what he's planning to do. 
to make sure that like, when the judgment comes upon the Amalekites, it doesn't overreach and the Kenites aren't swept up in the judgment. Like you have the people being delivered from judgment. But what happens then is that Saul doesn't do what God says. Is he does most of what God says, verse, starting at verse 7. Saul defeats the Amalekites, but instead of like killing Agag, the king of the Amalekites, um, and killing all the sheep and oxen and lambs and everything, um, he keeps Agag alive. And he bring and the people says that it says that the people were what does it say that they were I'm not listening to you um, Yoda um, <laughs> but the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and they were not willing to destroy them and it, and it's important there in verse nine that it, both Saul and the people made that decision do you see that at the beginning of verse nine. Both Saul and the people made the decision that they're not going to destroy the things because, man, that is too nice of a car to, like, destroy or too nice of an ox or too nice of a lamb. Like, we can't kill that. Right? That would be a nice addition to our herd. And there's nothing here about the excuses that get leveled later on. There's nothing here that indicates that that was really their intention. Their intention was, man, like, that's too sweet to just let pass by. And so they don't kill those things. And look what happens in verse 10 and 11. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Such an interesting expression. The God of the universe who knows all things from beginning to end, who, who, whose purposes are never thwarted, who has all power, tells Samuel, man, I have regret that I have made Saul king. And then Samuel's response was that he just gets overwhelmed with grief, right? And he's in distress and he cries out to the Lord all night long. You know, interestingly enough, only one other time, I think in the whole Bible, but for sure prior to this, that God, that it said that God regrets anything. And it was, it was, uh, it was right before the flood. And he says, man, I regret that I made mankind and placed them on the earth. And what followed was the judgment of God upon the world. And Samuel, I'm sure as a, as a teacher of the law, he had an easy job too. He only had five books at this point. Um, right? He's like, oh, I've heard that before. And in fact, in 1 Samuel 12, uh, when he was appointing a king, he said, if your king doesn't follow the words of the Lord, that God is going to be against you. And so when when he hears God say, man, I have the same feelings I did before the flood. Samuel's like, man, this is catastrophic. Like, and he's crying out to the Lord, but but I just want to, I want to point out something. There's like a, whole, a lot of you might be going theological on this one and trying to think like, how does the sovereign, omniscient God of the universe experience regret? And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But I don't want you to miss the point. Like God is so committed to his people. He's so involved in, in the affairs of humanity 
That when, when the king that his people placed over them, like is leading them astray and bringing them to the very place of judgment and the, instead of the place of blessing that, that, uh, that God wants for them, like God feels that deeply in a way that the writer could best express to us as regret. Like God is intimately concerned about the welfare of his people. He's not just some like power that sits off, like dis, like detached. Like he's not just some clockmaker that spun it up and went to the Bahamas while it all just run. Like he cares deeply about the fate of his people. He cares deeply about about like the the, the decisions they've made, and he experiences emotion around that. Like I wonder how. I wonder how our lives would be different if we really believed that. You know, if, if you think about your situation, whatever situation you're in, if we, if we really understood that the God of the universe is so committed to you, if you're his child, that he's emotionally impacted by the things that you face. Like he's emotionally impacted by like your sins like he was with Saul. Or he's emotionally impacted by your sorrows or by those burdens that you carry or by like, like God cares deeply about the welfare of his people to the point where like he and Samuel spent the night in regret and sorrow. And there's something beautiful here in the midst of all of like the kind of horror of the text that God cares that deeply. You know what happens, though, starting in verse uh, verse 12, is that God ends up rejecting Saul. This is our second point this morning. Look what happens in verse 12. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and then turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? So what happens is is God speaks to Samuel and, and says that he regrets. And so Samuel goes to talk to Saul. And the first thing that we're told is that after this battle that Saul did what? He set up a monument to himself. It's really important. Like he was just a servant of the Lord. This is like God bringing judgment upon sin, like that's God's business. That's not our own. And yet, like Saul took the glory of that battle and placed it on himself. He set up a monument to himself. Saul will continue to get a view of his like lack of spiritual insight. And then he comes up to, he comes up to Saul and Saul's like, hey, Samuel, act like everything's okay. I've done what I was supposed to do. And Samuel's like, um, if that's true, like, why am I hearing sheep everywhere, right? Or donkeys, as Eric would like to obsess about. Um, <laughs> I, I remember when I was teaching school, uh, we used to bring my, the students down to the pool on a regular basis. And one time I walked into the locker room as my kids were getting dressed to go back to school. And one of my kids had his hand on the nozzle. You know those, if you've been at the pool, they have these circular, like, showers and, and um, with a bunch of nozzles coming off of them. And he was had his hand to redirect the flow of the nozzle and he was spraying everybody like that was walking by and everybody that, uh, 
And I walk in, like, fully clothed. I'm not wanting to get sprayed by the kid. And he's, he's got his hand, like, on the nozzle doing it. And I'm like, hey, Eric, stop spraying kids with water. I'm not. <laughs> I was like, what an amazing, like, commentary on humanity. He's got his hand on the nozzle spraying someone. And I'm like, stop doing that. I'm not doing that. Right, that's Saul here, right? Like, Saul's like, hey, Samuel, everything's great. And he's like, well, why is your hand on the nozzle? If that's the case. And, and you know, Saul says this in verse 15. They, and Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we utterly destroyed. So maybe Saul's gonna get the, beginning to get the point here that, like, Oh, you're right. I kind of fell short. So what does what does he immediately do? He immediately appeals to like religious fervor, right? Oh, the real reason we brought all of this stuff was so that we could sacrifice it to the Lord because killing it now is so much better than killing it back then, right? There's like this foolishness here where Saul is like immediately trying to minimize his sin and he's trying to rely on religion to cover for him. He's like, oh, no, no, this was actually for worship, Samuel. This is because we love the Lord. This is because we want to give the best to him. You know, this, this idea of God's judgment that Saul wasn't willing to, like, fully carry out is important for us to grasp, you know, because... You know, the reality is this, is that texts like this where we, we'll see God's judgment come upon Saul and we'll see God's judgment and we see God's judgment come upon the Amalekites is that if we, if we begin like Saul and just start minimizing everything and like what we do is when we make little of the holiness of God, the sinfulness of sin, and the righteousness of justice, we begin to make little of our like need for the gospel and it'll indefinitely make little our love for Jesus. Because those who are forgiven much, what? Love much. And here Saul's just like playing the religious game, minimizing his sin, not recognizing it for what it is, and, and has zero love for the Lord. Samuel responds to him. Well, let me, let, I'm, I'm like way off track here on my notes, but let me, let me just put up a verse. Ezekiel 33. This is too good to not. Because all, this, I wanted to bring this up when I was talking about how God was inviting people back to repentance, like even the Amalekites, and, and that God feels deeply about these things. And, and we see here that God feels deeply, deeply about his people, but God doesn't even take it lightly. It doesn't specifically say it in this text, but like the judgment upon the world. Look what he says here. He says, Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? You ever felt that way? Like, man, I'm so far gone. Like, Nobody could love me and save me and redeem me. This is what God says here. Say to them, as I live, he swears to something, right? As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? It's a rhetorical question. The only reason that they would die 
is if they refuse to return, like turn from their wickedness and turn to the Lord. And, and the Lord takes no pleasure in judgment. Like he feels these things deeply. And even though Samuel's confronting Saul here, like Saul is not about to like turn from his wickedness. In fact, he keeps doubling down on it. Look what happens. Then verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. He's like, you know, that's your opinion, Saul, but I've got another opinion. You want to hear what God says about this? And And Saul says, Saul says, speak, verse 17. And Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made head over the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? There's this theme that keeps being said, like you didn't listen to the words of the Lord and you just did whatever you wanted to do. In fact, he says there, why didn't you do that? And why did you rush upon the spoil? That was an expression that we saw last week. If you were here last week, the people of Israel were so hungry that when, that when like the, the sun set, because they were under this weird vow, like they rushed upon the food and these animals and they started just killing and eating them like uh, in a way that was like that God had said not to do. They were so hungry that they rushed upon the spoil. And what Samuel, what God's saying to Saul here is that, you know what, Saul, you are hungry for the wrong things. And your hunger has caused you to like disobey me. Why have you rushed upon the spoil and not carried out the word of the Lord? Verse 20, and then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. And went on the mission which the Lord had sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of the Amalekites, king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. And the people took some of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the choicest things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. He's like, I did do what I was supposed to do. And then he's probably trying to get on in front of like the... The thing about Agag is this is the first time he brings up Agag. All that I did was brought back Agag. He's still minimizing. And then he does that great thing that anyone descended from Adam um, like loves to do. He loves to find like a loophole and a scapegoat, right? Oh, but it was the people who brought back the animals and wouldn't kill them. Do you see that? Verse 21, but the people took some of the things devoted to destruction. It wasn't me. I just brought back King Agag. I killed everybody else. It's the people. It's the woman you gave me. It's my neighbor, my friend, or my, you know, whatever. It's, it's got to be somebody else's fault, right? So Saul, like, minimizes. He deflects. He looks for a loophole. You know, and he, he exposes what so often lives in our own hearts. We just won't. Like, look honestly at our sin and turn from it. We try to make every excuse and cover it in every way we can. And then in verse 22, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. You know what he's saying is like, he's like, Saul, like God doesn't need your sacrifices. God just wants your like heart and your obedience. 
And don't think that doing a bunch of sacrifices like, and, and disobeying the Lord simultaneously is going to somehow like, take care of things. Because when you kind of define religion on your own terms, it's just like divination, witchcraft, and idolatry. What God wants is like obedience. You know, and there's, there's something about like the, what Samuel's, Samuel's words here are kind of like the core of the Christian faith. Because why didn't Saul, like Saul didn't obey what? The voice of the Lord, the word of the Lord. He didn't trust what God had said would really be the, the right thing. And so he did his own thing. And he came under, he, he got rejected by the Lord. You know, the heart of the biblical faith is that we need to believe the message of the scriptures and that belief will motivate our, our obedience. In fact, that's what Paul says in Romans 1. Romans 1, after talking about the work of Jesus Christ and how he was raised from the dead, verse 5 says this, through whom, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Do you see that? The obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Like if we truly believe like that God is trustworthy and true and his word is true and, and we've come to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Like the, the other side of that coin is that we're going to trust him enough to like follow him and obey him and keep his word. Everything Saul wanted to do. Saul, re, Saul redefined things, put them on his own terms tried to cover it with religion, tried to minimize it, tried to deflect it. And then there's these, these harsh words for Saul at the end of verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. This thing that I warned you about, Saul, God is doing now. You are rejected from being king. Saul finally like gets his attention. Now that the judgment has come, Saul finally Saul finally like seems to start thinking a little bit clearer. He says this, he says, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the commands of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Saul has this interesting like moment where he recognizes, oh, my problem is a is a heart problem and an ear problem, right? My first problem was, is that I feared the wrong thing. Like I feared the people. I, like my heart was wanting their approval, their validation, their like commendation, their praise, their honor. And I didn't fear the Lord and give him the proper place so that he would receive all glory and honor and praise. I feared the wrong thing. My heart was in the wrong place. And I listened to the wrong thing. It was an ear problem. I listened to the voice of the people. It's interesting. The very voice of the people that caused him to be appointed king, as he followed them, like caused him to be removed as king. Politics are a fickle and mean taskmaster, right? He listened to their voice. And there's so much, just that one phrase has so much for us. Like, what about our own hearts this morning? Like, what do you look for for validation, for significance, for security, for meaning? Are you looking to the Lord for those things? Like, seeking his approval, seeking to follow him? Or are you looking somewhere else? Like, our problem, like Saul's problem was a catastrophic misalignment of his heart. 
way before it was in his actions. Or what are you listening to? Maybe you're listening to those internal voices that condemn you or that praise you or that, right? That bring you shame or glory or... Maybe you're listening to the external voices around us of our culture and media and religion, whatever, whatever it is. You know, the, the bottom line, are, are we going to listen to God's word and let it like, guide us? Saul, Saul's heart was in the wrong place. He was looking for the wrong validation and he was listening to the wrong voice and it, and it caused him to be rejected. But then he replies to, he replies to uh, Samuel with this request. He says, um, verse 25, Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go, as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better, better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Interesting what happens here is Saul says, Samuel, I need your pardon and I need your partnership. Come back with me. Pardon me. Samuel can't give one. Only the Lord can pardon. And Samuel won't give the second one because the Lord's rejected him. And so Samuel's not going to partner with someone that the Lord's rejected. And so you have this pathetic moment where Saul, like Samuel's turning to walk up and Samuel like grabs his robe, kind of like pleading, begging like a little kid, like, right? And it tears Samuel's robe and Samuel's like, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you. And then he says this amazing statement. It's a quote from earlier in the Old Testament, but the Lord is not a man that he should lie or change his mind. It's actually the same word that we saw earlier, regret. That he should lie or have regrets for he is not a man that he should change his mind or regret. In fact, at the beginning of the passage, we saw regret. Here in the middle of it, we see that God doesn't regret, that God doesn't lie, God doesn't change his mind. And then at the end, we're going to see that God regrets again. Like, what's going on? What, what I think what the, the author wants us to understand is that, like, God feels, like, emotion genuinely and deeply about, like, the catastrophe that's befallen this world, but it's not as if his plan has ever changed. Like he is the sovereign God of the universe who's working all things out according to his will. And he doesn't lie. He always speaks the truth. And he doesn't regret and change his mind in the sense that he has to come up with plan B. He is always functioning under plan A. But that doesn't minimize the the feeling of regret and sorrow that he sees over the struggles that his people face. In fact, you you see that most clearly in, in Gethsemane, right? If you're familiar with... The last moments of Jesus' life, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and he's in such deep sorrow. He's sweating drops of blood. You don't feel anguish beyond that. Saying, not my will, like, if possible, please let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Like, simultaneously, you have, like, God's plan of redemption of humanity taking place, but him simultaneously feeling deep sorrow over the cost of it all. God's not out of control. He hasn't abdicated his throne. He hasn't made mistakes. He's the, he's the glory 
of Israel. This is what the text reads. Then Saul says something that tips his hand again. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Look at the pronouns here. It's really important. Please honor, I don't know if this is a pronoun or not, me now. Saul's still concerned about his public image, right? He wants honor. Please honor me now. Um, before the elders of whose people? My people. He continues to forget that these aren't like his people. They're the Lord's. He's not king over them. God is. And go back and worship me. Go back with me that I may worship the Lord. Who's God? Your God. Not mine. Saul has no like relationship with the Lord himself. And he's taken this place of like pride. And he wants man's honor. And he views God's people as being there for him. And he has no worship to the Lord. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord there. He went through the motions, right? And I'm just going to wrap up so I don't have to deal with this next week. So we're going to go a couple minutes over. This will be fast. Verse 32, this is God regrets making Saul king. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house of Gibeah at Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So there's this gruesome moment where Samuel, like the aged Samuel, hacks Agag to pieces, showing like the significance of the sin and the and the like need to tear down like idolatry and wickedness and and rebellion against God before his people in this graphic way. But there's something interesting that happens right before that. Agag gets brought up to the Lord, I mean gets brought up to Samuel, and he's cheerful. He's cheerful because he says to himself, Surely the bitterness of death is past. Oh, like I've been taken captive. Judgment hasn't befallen me. I'm going to escape this one. He misinterpreted something. He misinterpreted the delay. He misinterpreted the delay of God's judgment as being the, as thinking that, oh, judgment will never come. In fact, Saul did the same thing. The only time we see Saul repent when he's, been, when he's been confronted about things is here after judgment had come. Saul, Samuel had talked to him about this before multiple times, and Saul never seems to be impacted by it as if, oh, it's never going to come. And, and he only pretends to like repent after it comes. He misinterpreted God's delay. This is why I think we need to have passages like this in the scriptures to help, like, to help us understand this world that we live in because it is so easy for us to misinterpret God's patience and his grace and his forbearance that cause him to delay his judgment. The reason why I think we, we push against passages like this where, and it's not the only one, like one of the articles I, I, you'll get says like, this isn't the worst instance of God's judgment upon the earth. The flood has like rights to that one. But the reason why we push back against like God's pictures of God's judgment is because we think like, oh, maybe, maybe judgment will never come as if it's an unrighteous thing for God to judge. 
He's a righteous judge who judges in righteousness and truth, and one day it will come. You know, uh, Peter talks about this real specifically in Second Peter chapter 3. I have just one verse. Oh, no, I do have the whole thing up here, so that's great. I'll read it. Listen to this. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Let's just hold there. What he's saying is like, like people's propensity of their hearts is to misinterpret God's delay. And what he's saying here is that is that the world or the world around us, and I would submit to you, like even your own heart is going to say is going to like deceive yourself into thinking like, oh, there will never be a final judgment. In fact, this these temporal judgments like that befell Agag are just foreshadowing and pointing us to the day when when the righteous king comes and judges the earth. And there, like we've been at this thing for thousands of years from the beginning of creation, like. God's never going to return. He goes on. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that, the word of, that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. He continues. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Let's go back to that. Like there is going to be a day when Christ returns in judgment. Don't forget it. And it's not even like it's a big deal for the Lord because like a thousand years for the Lord is just like a day. Like the time of Christ, since Christ has been here, he's just, he just spent the weekend since then. Then he goes on. But the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Here you have God's desire like, what's motivating God's delay to come and exact judgment upon the earth? Like, his desire that people would come to faith in him and escape it. That they would come to repentance. That they would do, like it said in Ezekiel, to turn from their wicked ways and turn to him and escape death. Like, the story of God's judgment is, is not the final word in the Bible. It isn't the first word or the final word. The final word in the Bible is the restoration of God's kingdom where all of those who have placed their faith in him will enter into the glory of his fa- their father forever. But make no mistake of it. Like there will be a day. Like Agag forgot about it. He thought the delay was going to deliver him. Saul had forgot about it. Didn't really care until it was too late. Jesus warns this. He says this. These are the words of Jesus. If you think like I'm just being like mean and I should be more like Jesus. This is what Jesus says. He says, do you think that those upon those 18, this is Luke 13 verses four and five. Do you think that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. He's like this temporal calamity is a warning to all of us that are left behind that one day we will all be held accountable for what we've done. In fact, 
book of Revelation depicts Jesus this way. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. Revelation 19. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Like Jesus is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the one who's going to come back and by his word, judge the nations. But here's the beauty of the gospel. is that Jesus arrived there by walking a path first. He walked the path of becoming a man, of like living the perfect life that we could never live before God, of like being betrayed and mocked and falsely accused and executed on a cross, where the Bible tells us like he didn't act as judge. In fact, he became under the judgment of God, that he was the completely just one who died so that he could justify, the book of Romans tells us, the ungodly. He doesn't justify the righteous. He justifies the ungodly. And he was placed in a grave. Three days later, he was raised from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, from which he will come to judge the living and the dead. But that's why we have to understand the holiness of God and his righteousness and his sacrifice because it magnifies this work that Jesus has done for us because he's the one that bore the guilt of all humanity so that we don't have to bear it. But one day he's going to come back as king of kings and lord of lords and he is going to bring judgment upon the earth and only those who have placed their faith in him will escape. You know, so for those of us that have come to know Jesus Christ, like I, I would just ask you as you're kind of wrestling through like a hard message like this one to think deeply about like, what does God want to teach you about his holiness? What does God want to teach you about the sinfulness of sin? What does God want to teach you about the beauty of the gospel and the, the depths of the work, the love of Christ that he demonstrated for you in the gospel? Because unless you understand the sinfulness of sin and God's holiness and judgment, like we'll have a small gospel and we'll have a small love for Jesus. You know, and if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, don't just summarily disregard God as some like genocidal maniac like like uh, Richard Dawkins says that he is. Like, come to the pages of Scripture and see if what I'm telling you is true, that the message of the Bible is one of God's grace and one of him taking the wrath that we deserve so that we could escape. He takes no death, like no delight in the death of the wicked. And, and do like Ezekiel says and turn from your wicked ways. Repent and place your faith in, faith in Jesus so that you can be brought in like Rahab into the people of God and experience life. So Aaron, why don't you come up to close us? I just encourage you to like, as you're wrestling with things, if you're wrestling with things, if you're not wrestling at all, please go back and listen to my message because you must not have been paying attention. Um, but as you're wrestling with things, like just like... Ask the Lord what he wants you to learn from, from this about him and about the gospel and about the work of Jesus on your behalf. Um, and and if, if, if the Spirit's convicting you of, of being far from God, of being in rebellion against him, and know that Jesus like died to, make, to bring you back 
Like Rahab the harlot, you can be fully accepted into the people of God and, and be part of his plan for the ages. So Aaron, why don't you close us? I'll close us in prayer. Father, I thank you for being a God who bore the guilt of sinful man and all the guilt and shame and judgment that we deserve fell on your son and, and that you rose him from the grave and that you established him at your right hand and that one day he will come back and do away with sin and sickness and death forever. And Father, I just pray that you would help us to recognize how much we've been delivered from and forgiven of so that we can um, love you deeply. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.